Hey friend, Graham Baldwin here with The Speaker Lab. Hey, wouldn't it be nice if someone gave you the exact process to find and book more speaking gigs in 2024? That'd be nice, right? Well, I'll tell you what, we're just gonna do that for you. We've created a new 18-page guide based on Dan Irvin's process that helped him actually book over $100,000 in speaking gigs in the past year. Now, Dan is one of our uh, team members here. He's this, a very successful speaker and also one of our coaches. And so you're gonna learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, proposal emails, and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps. Again, that's plural, thespeakerlab.com slash steps. We're going to send you that PDF guide right to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps. That's it. That's all you got to do. Go there. Hey, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. You're awesome. What is up, my friends? Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. We are on episode 78. Hope you're doing well. Glad that you're here. If you're uh, brand new to speaking, maybe you've been speaking for many, 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 many years, and you're trying to figure out how to get paid or get paid more or build your business and expand beyond the stage, wherever you are at in your speaking journey, we are really glad that you are here today. Today, we are going to be having a conversation with speaking legend Bob Berg. And Bob is a uh, great guy, all-around phenomenal speaker, and uh, really excited to share his story, his journey, his lessons he's learned as a speaker along the way as as well. So let's get into it. Let's just jump right into it. Here we go. Here's my conversation, my chit chat chatteroo with speaker friend Bob Berg. What's up, my friends? Grant Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. Today, we are joined by speaker Bob Berg, who is a uh, speaker, entrepreneur, author, best known for his book, The Go-Giver, which is a phenomenal book. And we'll definitely link up to that in the show notes. People need to check that out. But excited to talk about Bob's story and journey, how he has built his speaking business and how speaking kind of plays a part in what he's doing today. So, Bob, how are you today, man? Doing great, Grant. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a uh, honor to hang out with you. So first of all, let's give a kind of a high-level view of your speaking business, of, of kind of what you do today, and then we'll kind of backtrack and see how you got to where you are. Sure. At this point, I'm pretty much speaking, doing keynotes on the topic of the go-giver. To put it in baseball vernacular, because I know you and I are both baseball fans, my fastball is the go-giver. My curveball is the uh, Endless Referrals Program, which used to be the main one, but I had a career shift several years ago. And so really, you know, high level is the uh, I'm speaking, though not as much as I used to. As I get older, I'm 58 now. And as I get older, I'm trying to cut down the actual number of dates I'm on the road. So I will do no more than 22 this year and uh, hopefully next year, 15 and probably keep it at that because I still like speaking, just don't like the travel part of it. And then, you know, we have other parts of the business, you know, such as a certified speaker program. We have the podcast and other services and so forth. Gotcha. Very good. Let's kind of backtrack then and, and, and talk about how you got into this. What were you doing pre-speaking or have you always been speaking? Uh, no, I started out as a, a newscaster. I was the late night news guy for a small ABC affiliate in the Midwest, an ABC affiliate. I, I really, Grant, I was not very good at it. Uh, in fact, I, I stunk. <laughs> where, where in the Midwest? <laughs> it was in uh, Ada, Oklahoma. Okay. K-T-E-N-T-V. Uh, they're not actually even there Shout anymore. Shout out they're to in, them they're, or what used to yeah, be. <laughs> yeah, they're in Sherman, Denison, Texas now. But I, I loved it, actually. I loved Ada, Oklahoma. What a, a fantastic community that was. Is there a, uh, is there a college there? There is East Central University is their, there is their several big college. years ago. Yeah. 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 It sounded familiar, but yeah, uh-huh. been there. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it's so funny. I was 24 years old when I got that job. I was just out of college and I'd taken a couple of years off between high school and college. So I graduated late and I knew nothing about 
the news, okay? And I didn't care. So that did not make for a good journalist. (laughs) I could read the news, right? But, you know, not a journalist. And I think I was probably a little bit intuitively too positive for the medium anyway. My idea of a good opening would have been something like, good evening, everyone. I'm Bob Berg. And the news tonight, everything's great. (laughs) Go to bed. bed. (laughs) We'll let you know if something comes up, right? So, So I soon found myself having graduated, as I like to say, into sales. The challenge was I knew nothing about selling. And so I floundered for a while, and the training at the company I was at was negligible at best, and so I kind of had to do it on my own, and I'm not a good do-it-on-my-own person. I need to learn from people who know more than I do. So fortunately, I stumbled into a bookstore. Well, I don't think I stumbled. I think I walked in purposely into the bookstore, but it was back in the day, and this is 35 years, maybe more than that, back in the day when bookstores, their main feature were actually books right. as opposed to you know coffee and Danish pastry and so forth. And so I saw a book, uh, How to Master the Art of Selling by Tom Hopkins, got that book, studied it, just totally invested myself in it. And within a few weeks, my sales went through the roof. I began studying Zig Ziglar, who became a true hero of mine and, and others, and became a real student of sales. And I say this because I think For anyone in the speaking business, and this is what I found when I first got into speaking, that when you can learn from other people who've already accomplished what you want to accomplish, you're much better off than trying to go it alone. It's utilizing a system which I define simply as the process of predictably achieving a goal based on a logical and specific set of how-to principles. The key being predictability, right? If, if it's been proven that by doing A, you'll get the desired results of B, then all you need to do is A and continue to do A and you'll get the desired result of B. And so my sales career took off. I worked my way up to sales manager of a company. And then I attended a, a seminar where I bought the speakers, uh, this is how long ago it is, audio cassette album. Yeah. Okay. And at the back, he had a thing in there that said, if you'd like to speak part time and sell our tapes, let us know. And so I went down there and and I started learning how to speak at civic clubs and organizations and groups doing 20 minute talks and then selling his tapes at the end. I love doing that. And but in time, I actually began to a career as a speaker and began to develop my own products, materials, books and so forth. But, you know, one of the best things I ever did was joining, and this goes back to a system again, is joining National Speakers Association Mm -hmm. because that's where you get around a whole lot of people who have the system for building a speaking business. And it's so, it it probably cut my learning curve seven, eight, nine years by going just those first couple of years of going to the conventions and the workshops. Yeah, and I really like that you hammered on the finding, uh, I've always said, find a speaker who's doing what you want to do and figure out not necessarily what they're doing today, but what did they do early on? What were some of those early steps that they took? Mm -hmm. And so as you're kind of scanning the horizon, if you're not finding any speakers that are are doing something similar, it's generally not like, oh, there's this whole new opportunity. It's like, no, 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 it's probably because the market (laughs) is not interested in that topic or that subject. So really finding other speakers who are doing something similar is really, really key. So it sounds like for you, you mentioned Zig, you know, is, is obviously a well-known speaker that a lot of us can resonate with and have seen speak and present. Whenever you saw Zig speak, and then it sounds like even going to the sales seminar, when you are seeing some of these other speakers doing their thing, are you thinking like, that should be me, I need to do that? And then just kind of learning what they did or what were some of those early steps beyond just the, I'm presenting someone else's material to transitioning to now, I'm, how do I make this my own business? Oh yeah, I mean, I don't think it's ever a matter of 
you know, doing someone else's, I mean, you can't, you know, you can't do that ethically right, without right. their permission <laughs> and it wouldn't be authentic anyway, because we all have our own things we do. I think that the big thing though, is learning how did they build a business? Because we know you and I know there's a big difference between the speech itself, the presentation itself and the business of speaking. Right. Right. And what I really went to and what I joined NSA, National Speakers Association, to learn was not so much the speaking aspect, though don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, I learned so much from seeing those masters up there doing their thing. It was a, a fantastic experience just to see them. But it was really the business of speaking mm -hmm. that I knew I really, really needed to learn. And I think that's how it is with most people, with most upcoming speakers. We're speakers because we have something that we feel the need to communicate and speak about. We have something that we've learned that we'd now like to teach and, of course, continue learning as we teach it. But that's a small part of it. Right. Uh, that's writing a book. Uh, you know, a lot of times people write a book and think, okay, the hard work's done. No. The hard work's just beginning. <laughs> now it's promoting the book and getting it out there in the marketplace, right? And so that was really what I wanted to see. And so I would go to the, the workshops and I'd go to the, you know, the breakout sessions and learn from these people who, you know, who the mainstream may never heard of because they were working so successfully in a particular niche. Right, right. And you just knew they went step one, step two, step three, and they did a fantastic job of building their business. Right. And I think that was the key. And I think that's the key. So, yes, we always want to keep learning how to speak, how to speak better, how to improve ourselves in that way. But I'm assuming the people listening probably already have an area of expertise. And that's why they're wanting to go into the speaking business. Yeah, it always reminds me of Michael Gerber's book, The E-Myth, of the, mm -hmm. the analogy he uses is the, the baker, you know, and, and they can bake cakes, but it's one thing to know how to bake a cake really, really well. It's another thing to know how to run a bakery and how to exactly. actually find clients. And mm -hmm. you know, in our case, it's one thing to be a great speaker, which is one of your best marketing tools, but it's a whole nother thing to know how do you actually find business? How do you get the ball rolling? So what was it for you in terms of the business side that was getting the ball rolling, that was getting bookings on your own in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Well, remember, I'm 58, so that qualifies me as being old school. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, and, and, and you're right, though. It, I think yeah. that's important context, though, that what you would do 20, 30 years ago may be completely different than what you would do today. So what were some of those early steps? And maybe even to bring it to today, what would be some things that maybe you would do today that would be different? Well, so the interesting thing is I think there are a lot of differences, but the principles still apply. Right. You still have to determine, you know, who is your market. You still go through what I call the marketing bridge. Do they need it? Do they want it? Can they afford it? Yeah. A lot of times when we say and this is the very first thing I did, and that's something I just learned when I was in direct sales. You know, when I was selling, uh, it was first when you were pre-qualifying, if you will, determining who you're going to prospect. Do they need what you have to offer? If they need it, do they want it? Because as you know, if they need something, but they are totally committed to not wanting it, right, right. they ain't getting it. Right, you know, right. I mean, they're just not going to do it. Now, there's, and then sometimes need isn't really the issue because let's say a, a Mercedes, nobody needs a Mercedes. They want a Mercedes. So need isn't necessarily a part of it. But for what we do, when we're looking for a, a niche to speak to, to market ourselves to, to be able to serve, we first, you know, do they need what we have to offer, our program, our product or service, what do, you, do they want it? Assuming they do, can they afford it? Now, this again has a couple different sides to it because typically if they want it, they can afford it. Mm 
If they don't want it, they can't afford it, <laughs> right? We, yeah. Because none of us can afford what we don't want because it holds no value True. to us. So or it holds less value than what we would have to pay for it. So, and then of course, sometimes depending upon where you are on the fee scale, they need it and they want it, but they really can't afford it. Okay, but but right now, and typically when we're first starting out, our fees are usually at a point where if they need it and want it, they can afford it, which doesn't mean you have to start out at a, a particularly low fee, but it's still probably at the point where a group or organization you're targeting can afford it. And if they can't, then you, you simply, you cannot effectively target to that market. You could, but you'll have a hobby rather than a business. And hobbies are great too, but that's not really what we're talking about right here. So we start out there and... Then what I did is, you know, what I was taught, and that is get a copy, uh, not, not an online copy, because there was no such thing as online copies at the time, but it was get two manuals, the State and Regional Association Directory and the National Trade Professional Association Directory, the SRA and the uh, NTPD. No, NTPA, I think, National Trade Professional Association. And I just went through them. I chose my markets. I went through the state and regional ones first. I would, and it was called the call, send, call, call, call call, call <laughs> principle. And so, you know, you found the niche, and let's say it was a uh, you know, state association of independent insurance agents. Okay. And, yeah. and so I would call them the, you know, I'd start out with the one at A and B and saying, just keep going. And you call, you get to the decision maker and you qualify as far as, as if there's interest, if there is, you send out your information package. Again, this is in the old days before the internet. And then now you did Position yourself back then through writing articles through their trade association magazine, their trade magazine and other different ways you could. That was also one reason why having a book out is important because you can use that as a positioning tool. But you just basically, once you found someone there was an interest, you followed up and followed through and so forth until you got the gig. Connie Gordon, who was a speaker and a very successful speaker long before I came on the scene, she said when she first started, not only did she do that, but she was so determined, she couldn't have cared less about the no's. She got tons of no's, didn't care, just kept going. She said, all I was interested in was the yeses. And, and that's what she did. And she built a huge business. There's a great book by my friends, Andrea Waltz and Richard Fenton called Go For No gofornow.com. And it's just a small business parable that talks about being able to embrace the no's. Their premise is yes is the destination. No is how you get there. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I'm harping on this is because I just want people to know as a new speaker, not everyone listening is a new speaker, of course, but to those who are and, and to those who aren't, no is a big part of it. Yeah. So be prepared. You're going to get a lot of no's and that's okay. That's okay. And then eventually, so when I'd get the, you know, the state association and hopefully do a bang up job, as you said, that's your best marketing tool, but you can't depend on that though. You've also got to then get the endorsement letter. And back then it wasn't email. It was a, a letter on their letterhead. And then you use that when you call the, you know, to, to go back to the next one who you'd already prospected and say, don't know if you know, I spoke for the so-and-so, uh, you know, feel free to call Mr. So-and-so or Ms. So-and-so uh, one. And, you know, he's a, and everything I would do. Okay. Back then. Every small success I had, I would use it in order to position myself for the next bigger success. Right. And it just kept going. Then, you know, you'd work that niche. Then you'd work – once you had that one kind of going, you work another one and you can expand outwards. Eventually, about four or five years into it after probably thousands of calls, not really, but close, <laughs> I got on stage at a public event with uh, Zig Ziglar and another person. And you know that once I had – the mailing piece for, you know, the thing they send out, the uh, 
promotional mm -hmm. uh, page for it. Well, you know that became part of my information package. Right. That got sent to all my past no's who I was now following up with. I uh, didn't know if you knew. I had just appeared, you know, I was just opening for Zig Ziglar at the so-and-so and, you know, use that as a positioning tool. So kept building upon those small successes. Well, now it's so much easier to do that because now we can connect with people easier than we ever have before. But you've still got to get to the decision maker or the person who is the chairperson of the program committee, and you've got to do those things. If I can mention two people who I believe are fantastic resources for this. Yeah, absolutely. Lois Kramer is just wonderfully fantastic, and, and she just knows this business like the back of her hand. She's amazing. And uh, Jane Atkinson, mm -hmm. who wrote Wealthy Speaker 2.0 and, and a number of books, Again, these are two fantastic resources that by going to them, you can really cut your learning curve time down significantly as well. Yeah, and I would echo a thousand percent everything that you just said there. And it's very interesting to me, even as you're talking, that granted, you know, you've been doing this significantly longer than I have. I've been speaking full time for about 10 years now. But the process that I use to get started and to get bookings is virtually identical, just in a different, exactly. different time frame. So instead of making thousands of phone calls. I was making, I was sending thousands of emails. And so, right. uh, and, but even like you're saying of, you would get a booking, you'd get that recommendation letter. I'd still try to get them on the letterhead and you'd try to leverage that into another state and take that to another state. And eventually you could leverage that to the national organization. And you're just kind of like inching your way up along the way. But one of the things I like about what you said there is it's not glamorous. It's not sexy. It's very monotonous. It's tedious. It's repetitive. It's boring. But that's the discipline of building a business. That's the discipline of growing that speaking part of your business, of getting the word out there. So it's it's not like, you know, today you have a you have the Go-Giver, which is an extremely successful book that I want to talk about here in just a second. Uh, but it's not like, well, like, you know, I just wrote a book and it blew up and now all of a sudden I just get bookings. Like, no, no, you make thousands of calls that nobody sees that get you on these little stages that lead to bigger stages. Right. And it's just a lot of like sweat equity behind the scenes in order to make it happen. Exactly. The momentum eventually builds. And that's great. And, you know, you keep working that and leveraging that. But just as you said, it's a very unglamorous business, especially at first. And it doesn't seem like it would be, but it is. See, I think the thing is, Grant, as long as we go into it understanding that, right. then it's fine. I think what knocks many people out of the speaking business when they get in and they realize that at first they have to do their own marketing, okay, what knocks them out is not all the no's they get. It's thinking they're the only ones getting those no's yeah. and that all the people they see, the Callaways and the McCain's and the, you know, and the Robertson's and all these people, they think, oh, they were just always successful and they were. No, of course not. Right. Um, they got more no's than, you know, but they work through them. Right. And so I think as long as we know that that's just part of the process, we're OK. Then we expect it. We get a no. We go, OK, you know, now we go on to the next one. I'm curious, you kind of touched on this in the beginning and kind of the intro, but you wrote Endless Referrals, which was your first book, is that right? And then yes. Go-Giver was your second book? Well, there were some, a few between those, but yes, uh, Endless Referrals was my first book, yes. You talked about the kind of that career shift there. Was that primarily uh -huh. in terms of what you were speaking about? Well, what happened was, you know, Endless Referrals had been my fastball for a long time. Mm -hmm. You know, that was my thing. While I had several other books between Endless Referrals and The Go-Giver, my main topic was still Endless Referrals. And I'm not one of these speakers that can speak on like 25 different – I love people like Brian Tracy who's so brilliant 
that he can, you know, become an expert at a topic, you know, in a year or less, you know, I mean, he's amazing. I mean, there are certain people like that. I don't know how they do it, but they do. I love them. And boy, do I respect them. I'm not one of those people. (laughs) I do a couple things really well and that's it. And so the endless referrals was one and a thing I had on how to master the art of positive persuasion. That was another, but though that was pretty much it. And again, endless referrals was the main thing. Well, I had always loved reading business parables and uh, probably the same ones you've read and that most of the people on this call have read and always enjoyed them and found them to be just a great way to take in a good message in a fun way. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if we could take the basic premise of endless referrals, which is that all things being equal, people will do business with and refer business to those people they know, like, and trust. How do you get to that? Well, you give value to everyone whose lives you touch. Wouldn't it be great if we could put that into a business parable? Now, just so you know, the the endless referrals, while over the years I may have gotten a couple of calls to speak because of people who read the book and it worked its way up to, you know, through the ranks, whatever, and they called, that was generally not the case. Typically, I utilized endless referrals as a proactive marketing tool. So when I came up with the idea, the title for the book, The Go-Giver, and I actually kept it in mind for about two years because I wasn't exactly sure what to do with it. Then sketched, uh, I had a very sketchy outline, some sketches of characters, but that was it. And then fortunately, I had been working with a magazine. I had just submitted articles. I was one of their contributors. And the editor-in-chief was John David Mann who I got to know as an absolutely brilliant editor and who I also knew was a brilliant writer. And I asked him if he would co-author this with me and really be the lead writer and storyteller. Because again, I'm a how-to guy. You can tell just from talking with me. I'm step one, step two, step three, right? John's a magnificent storyteller. And I knew he could really make this thing sing. So we got together on this and you know, wrote it within about six months, I guess. And then it was, it. we went through about, I think, 27 rejections from publishers. Wow. We had found an agent, great agent, Margaret McRide, McRide Literary Agency. And, but it was turned down by so many. And then finally we had a publisher for it. The book came out. Now, this book, I actually get calls on this book. This book, now I promoted it very heavily and I have since it first came out. But we actually get calls from companies to come in and speak after they've read this book. So it's the first one, it's the first book I've had that's ever been a reactive or inbound type of marketing experience for me where we get the calls in. I don't ever planned on that being the case because I was so used to with endless referrals that not being the case. And I don't know how often it happens. It does with some, but I think it's one of those, it's sort of like a, a YouTube thing that goes viral you can't really plan on it happening. It either happens or it doesn't. And right. fortunately, it has with this book. But so from that point on, I began to speak. And here's where the shift came in. Rather than speaking on endless referrals, my fastball became the five laws from the go-giver. Gotcha. Yeah. Now, if I do that as a keynote, it's pretty much the five laws and that's what it is. But a lot of times companies will have me come in to do the keynote and then another one where we then get into the how-to aspect behind it. And of course, I love doing that because I love the teaching aspect of it. But, you know, they're both fun. But yeah, so that's really where the shift happened. So it wasn't something I planned on necessarily. It was just something that happened because of the way the book was received. Gotcha. Okay, and that's, that's kind of what I was getting at was, so it sounds like it was more 
recognizing that okay, this this new book is coming yes. out, the Go Giver has come out. There's this. Let's put this book out, and if it goes well, great, and if not, so be it. And, and but it's you know we've got this new book out, and it just it catches and it clicks and it resonates with people, and we're getting bookings from it. So it sounds like at that point, then it's just a matter of recognizing the momentum and the wave that's being created, and just seizing that and transitioning from talking primarily about endless referrals. And like you said, and endless referrals becomes the curveball and go-giver becomes the right. ball in that case. <laughs> but just based on the situation rather than rather than just like trying to plan that from, I'm, okay, I'm sitting down to write go-giver and this is going to become the fastball. No, just like paying attention to what the, the market kind of dictates. Uh, oh, that, perfect way to put it. Perfect way to put it because the market will tell you what it wants. You, we just have to pay attention to it. And then of course, everything we did after that, we branded around the go-giver. Let's touch on this for a second. I know obviously in those referrals, and then I know you touch on this within GoGiver quite a bit as well, but the subject of referrals, we both know that in the beginning, when you're getting going, it is a lot of grunt work. It is a lot of phone calls and emails, but especially the longer you're in the business, the more word of mouth, the more referrals you get from other clients, you get from other speakers. So how do you begin to build in some of that referral base to your business where it becomes a key part of getting additional speaking engagements and bookings? Sure. Well, I think that any time you get referrals that are reactive, that's great, but it's to me, it's a bonus. Now, I yeah. know a lot of speakers, they do get those a lot. I guess people just love them so much that they tell everybody about it, and that speaker then just gets inundated with calls and requests, and and if that happens for you, wonderful. Right. Congratulations. I don't depend on that sort of thing. I welcome them with gratitude <laughs> when they happen, but I'm much more likely to get with the decision maker, the person who brought me in, you know, do the debrief afterwards, make sure they were very happy, and then ask them, you know, if they would be open to referring me to their counterparts in other organizations. And, and then if they are, and it's, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead, go ahead. You're going. No, and if they are, and then, you know, I write there, I get names. Now, I don't do that as much anymore because, again, you know, uh, I'm the old codger at this point. And so at this point, if they want to come to me, great, they can. Uh, you know, I'm not looking to speak more. I'm looking to speak less. So but for a long time, I absolutely did that. And I would write there, you know, ask who they would know from other companies or within these or, you know, however it would be, because there's different. It depends upon what you do. But, yes, I would proactively ask. And then I would if they wanted to make the call, that was all the better in that case. If they did an introduction, if not, I was happy to do it and say that, you know, so-and-so, I believe you know so-and-so, and he asked me to call or she asked me to call, boom, and just handle it that way. And so again, I think the key point there is not necessarily doing it like months later when you're kind of out of sight, out of mind from the event, but it's like right then at the event, you're with the person in person and right. able to say, hey, if you like this and you thought this went well and what you were looking for, who else would you be looking for or who else would be a, you know, a potential fit for this? So is there any tip or strategies that you used about when you would ask or where you would ask or how you would ask? And then you mentioned also that ideally like best possible scenario is if they make an introduction or they call on your behalf or send an email on your behalf. But even if they just give you a name and an email address, but how did you kind of go about that conversation with a client? You know something, it really depended on the relationship that was formed with the client. True. I never, and I think this is so important, we never want to put them into a spot where they feel like they're being asked to do something that they're not comfortable doing. Mm-hmm. OK, we always want to and I always frame it by saying, you know, this is something only if you would feel comfortable doing. 
you know, only if it's something that you would like to do. I always do that because I always want to give them the out or the back door. Yeah. This is so important because people want to feel in control of themselves and their decisions. And, you know, the out or back door is simply an emotional escape hatch. It lets this person know that you're okay with them saying no. And what I call Berg's law of the out or back door is simply that the bigger the out or back door you give someone to take, the less they feel the need to take it. So you're not giving them the out or back door in order for them to take it. You're giving it to them so that they legitimately and genuinely understand that they could so they feel comfortable enough with you that they don't feel the need to take it. Did you ever have people take – how often – and I guess some of this comes down to you – recognizing and knowing that you've done a lot of speeches, a lot of presentations, and you know that you deliver a quality product that's worth recommending and referring. Mm -hmm. But did you ever have people who seem to be like hemming and hawing about it? Or how did you kind of approach those situations? Or if you felt like an event went just okay, would you even bother to ask? Or how did you kind of dance that? Mm, no, not if I felt it went only okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, my feeling was if I felt that I really knocked their socks off and they were, you know, they came up to me and they were very happy about about it or something, then, you know, I'd let the person know that I'd love to discuss with them at their convenience a time when we could, you know, so forth and so on. So I, I always kind of had it in mind and always knew what it was I wanted to do, but I always honored the occasion of it and honored the context of the right. situation. Right. Yeah. Context was the big word that came to mind there. And you mentioned the relationship piece that there are clients that you and I both have that we've worked with time and time and time again, and we exchange Christmas cards and feel like they are just true, genuine friends and other clients that you work with. And you just, uh, it's kind of a one-off event and you maybe don't gel real well, or mm -hmm. they're super stressed or have a lot going on. And it may just, even if it goes great, it may not make sense at that time to ask, but it may, you know, it may make sense to send a follow-up later. Exactly. Gotcha. Well, let's wrap up with this. As a speaker, I know that you've given literally thousands of presentations, and thankfully, most of them go well at this point, but there's certainly those moments where you come off stage and you're just like, what just happened? So oh. uh, tell us about a time where it couldn't be worse than this. You got a good horror story for us? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was actually asked to speak. Now, I'll, <laughs> I'll set it up with this. I never do, um, what do you call it when you do the, uh, you know, they're like tryouts, uh, showcases. You get a, showcases. I just don't do show. I mean, at this point in my career, I have no, no desire to at all. Yep. I never even liked the idea when I was younger in my career, there were a couple times I did them, but unless I felt it was really a worthwhile thing, I just didn't, I never felt it was good positioning to try out you know, as a first, but again, that's just me. I'm not saying it's right. No, I, I would and, agree. And I, I, did, I did two several years ago and you're just kind of like, yeah, it feels like, yeah, a, uh, like a, like a dog and pony show. Exactly. So I was asked to do one. This is back, I think about 2002, 2003. I was asked to do one by a group that had a real, it was the uh, direct selling association, which is a whole lot of network marketing companies, which I used to speak with to a ton back in the late 90s. I hadn't done them the last couple of years a whole bunch. This would have been a fantastic chance because you had a whole lot of the CEOs of the different direct sales companies all in one room. It was a showcase. It was just simply a two-hour event where it was four speakers and it was four very high-impact speakers. And so it wasn't one of those things where it was like a, you know, a tryout as much. It was just, there were these four very highly paid speakers that came in to do this because it just happened to be the perfect match between the audience, the people who put us together and us. Okay. Right. And the other three speakers did a 
fantastic job. Just absolutely knocked the doors out of their hinges. Fantastic. I, for some reason, it was a 20-minute talk. I, for some reason, just did not connect with the audience. Mm -hmm. And I could feel it the entire time. Ugh. The words were the same as I usually say, but I just did not have it. And there was actually a, I could sense a dislike from the audience to me. And I found out afterwards it was true. They hated me. <laughs> and I could feel it. And I got to tell you, I was depressed for days, not because I blew an opportunity for a whole lot of great talks. I mean, that was certainly, you know, something to do with it. I, I didn't like that idea, but it was because I just knew that I did not perform. And I'll tell you what, it kind of put me into a depression for a while. I was really angry at myself. I was never angry with the crowd because it's, hey, you know, when the shooter misses the target, it ain't the target's fault. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just, I blew it. I just did not have it. And still even talking about it to this day, it's like, oh, I, I can feel myself turning red a little bit, you know, with embarrassment. So that was a horror story to me, but it just shows another thing. And that is we survive our horror stories. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Is there anything that like, even in that context where it just, it didn't go well, is there anything looking back that you feel like you could have done different or is it just felt like an off day or just, it wasn't a good match? Cause I'm with you. I think, I think we've all had some of those moments where, and you kind of alluded to it, like, you can kind of tell even within the first minute or two, it's uh -huh. like that, that joke normally lands and it didn't, and we yeah. are off to a rough start. So mm -hmm. uh, is there mm -hmm. any like tweaks that when those moments happen, what's kind of, do you have any type of like evaluation process of how you can avoid that next time? Yeah, it was a, by the way, as far as the match goes, it was a great match, perfect audience. It was simply uh, me blowing it. I think I just wanted it so badly. I was so attached to this being my best one ever. Yeah, yeah. So attached to it. Now, it's one thing to desire something, that's fine. But when we're emotionally attached to the result, then we're in trouble right. because our sense of happiness and peace of mind depends on the thing happening. Right. Uh, I should have looked at it as any other talk because every talk is my most important talk. Sure. Okay. And, but I didn't do that. I was really attached to the outcome of this. I was self-centered. I was self-focused rather than being other focused, focused on just bringing value to the audience. Right. And again, it's, you know, it's easy to look back on that and say, you know, why didn't I think of that beforehand? Well, I don't know, but I didn't. <laughs> Hindsight's twenty twenty. Right. Awesome. Well, Bob, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, your journey, some of the lessons you've learned along the way. If people want to find out more about you, if they want to check out some of the books that we've referenced, where can we go? Uh, probably best place is just thegogiver.com uh, with no hyphen, just thegogiver.com. And they can scroll down the page and see what they like and connect with me there. Awesome. Well, we'll be sure and link up to that in the show notes. So, Bob, thanks for the time. Really appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate you so much, Grant. Thank you. All right. There you go. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with speaking legend Bob Berg. All around cool cat there. Did you enjoy that? The guy's smart. He just knows his stuff. So, all right. Hey, that wraps up episode 78. As always, feel free to stop by thespeakerlab.com. Check out the show notes, links, everything we discuss. We'd love, love, love if you uh, subscribe to the podcast, leave us a rating and review, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. We'd want to know if, however we can help you and support you. Uh, we really do. Uh, we really, that's what we're here for. And in fact, I'm just going to tease this out. I'm going to tell you in just a couple weeks, about mid-August or so, mid to late August, you're going to start hearing, that'll be late August, you're going to hear about a new project we've been working on behind the scenes for the past several months that I am wicked stoked about. I don't even, like, I, I don't even use the word wicked. W wicked, I was trying to do a Boston accent, but I can't even, I'm not even going to attempt to do that. Anyway, it's going to be awesome. Super excited about it. 
Man, I want to tease you, but I don't even, I'm not going to. Nope, we're just going to leave it at that. Late August, mark your calendar. Be ready for it. All right, my friends, we'll catch you next time. You're awesome.